Hello, everybody, and welcome or welcome back to another episode of the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. We have got a research-based episode today again, and I am so freaking excited. If you've never been to the podcast before, you've never listened before, welcome. My name is Mallory Page. I am a registered dietitian. I'm also the host and creator of this podcast, which I created because I wanted a space to be able to discuss more non-diet perspective amongst so much of the diet culture perspective out there, especially in the realm of nutrition, fitness, recovery, current events, and so on and so forth. So I hope that when you listen to this, you can step away with some new information and ultimately apply this to your life or your mindsets in whatever way that you see fit. And it's really important for me in this podcast to provide multiple perspectives, provide the research, and give you the fullest extent of information I can while also still making this interesting because no one just wants to listen to me talk about research for hours and hours on end. As I mentioned, this is going to be a research-based podcast today, and that doesn't mean that we're only talking about research. It just means that it's one of those episodes that there's a lot to discuss And I'm sure it doesn't surprise you guys when you read the topic description and learned that it was gluten that there would be a lot to discuss with this topic. I mean, gluten and the conversation around why we should have gluten is probably one of the most discussed topics in the nutrition space. And I also think that outside of nut allergies, gluten was the first intolerance to really make its way onto more menus and to be more widely talked about in the way that some people can and cannot eat this. So I want to dive right in and start off with why are we having this conversation? So as I was already mentioning, over the past decade, gluten has become increasingly demonized and blamed for a wide range of disorders, illnesses, and digestive problems. One article by Bustle actually called it uh, the wicked grain of the West, and over 20 million Americans claim that gluten is the source of their stomach and digestive problems. Based off projections, this trend isn't expected to go anywhere anytime soon either. By 2032, the market is projected to be valued at 14 billion US dollars, and that is more than double what it was in 2022, largely due to the fact that Gen Z and millennials are most likely to be the demographic that is following this gluten free lifestyle. Medical News Today recently published an article titled Gluten Free Diet Gains Popularity Despite No Rise in Celiac Disease. The author also reported that around 26 to 30 percent of adults in the U.S. today claim to be reducing their gluten intake or avoiding gluten completely despite not being diagnosed with any form of gluten sensitivity. Given the prevalence of this diet in our society and all of the information I just shared, I wanted to talk about what exactly gluten is as well as the pros and cons of going gluten-free so that you can have a better understanding of the science and the history behind it. So of course we need to start off explaining what gluten is. I remember going to school for nutrition thinking that I understood gluten And recognizing as I started to go through school that I did not understand it at all. 
If you are familiar with any type of dietetics major, you'll know that we have to do a plethora of different kind of strange classes. And one of those is a lab where we essentially bake and cook all different types of foods. And in that lab, we actually experiment with gluten and learn about the effects of having gluten specifically in breads and how it changes the texture and all of this stuff. So I feel like although we talk about gluten all the time, many people don't actually get what it is. And I think that's because it's actually somewhat unexpected. So gluten is a protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye. It helps foods to maintain their shape and it acts as a glue that holds foods together. And while gluten is naturally occurring, it can be extracted and added to food and other products to add protein, texture, and flavor. So some common food products that contain gluten would be pasta, bread, bagels, flatbreads, baked goods, salad dressings, seasonings, and spice mixes, processed meats or vegetarian meat substitutes, cereals, granola, and even some alcoholic beverages such as beers and ales. As you can see, gluten is extremely prevalent in many foods in the average American diet, both naturally and with additions. But when did it become this way and how did we even get here? You know, what is the deal with the debate over gluten? So to answer that question, I want to go into the history. About 10,000 years ago in Asia, grains first began to be cultivated by humans after hunting and gathering was replaced by farming. However, it wasn't until the 19th century that wheat was milled in large quantities and gluten assumed a more prominent place in the diet. As the Industrial Revolution progressed, it became easy and inexpensive to mill and distribute wheat flour, and during the Great Depression and World War II, pasta and bread were encouraged as inexpensive alternatives to the highly rationed foods like meat and dairy in the United States. Then, in the 1960s, wheat consumption rose again when whole wheat products were advertised as health foods, and then again in the late 70s and early 80s when fast food became prevalent. In the 1990s, the USDA's first food pyramid placed wheat products along the base of the food pyramid, instructing Americans to base their diets around bread, pasta, and other grain products. And at this time, the consensus around wheat products and therefore gluten was pretty positive. Most people, especially in America, were including these things in their diet. If they were looking for more of a quote-unquote nutritious approach, they would be consuming more whole wheat foods. But overall, it was a big staple within the American diet. And there were not many people that were discussing gluten or especially not discussing the idea of going gluten-free. I do think it's important to make note of the fact that even though the general population wasn't discussing going gluten-free, there still were people that were going gluten-free because of celiac disease. If you don't know what celiac disease is, it's a condition where when you consume gluten, it triggers a severe autoimmune response. About one in every 133 Americans have celiac disease, which is around 1% of the population or less. And celiac disease actually has its own history. So if we circle back to World War II, there was a doctor by the name of William Carl Dickey, who was a Dutch pediatrician, and he noticed that fewer children with celiac disease were suffering symptoms during wartime 
than before the war. But at that time, it wasn't called celiac disease. Since 1888, it was actually recognized as wasting disease because they didn't know exactly what caused it. So then, during World War II, when this doctor noticed the change in mortality rate from 30% before the World War to 0% during the war, he knew that there was something going on. And then when the mortality went back up to 30% after the war, he knew that there had to be something at play that was causing the change within the diet. So I know that this is kind of confusing because I mentioned that during World War II, grain intake was actually at an all-time high. And of course, this makes sense because grain-based foods were much cheaper than animal products and animal byproducts. However, the flour that was used during the war was made with potato starch and not wheat. And that's when the doctor made the connection between wheat protein and celiac disease. And he actually went on to develop the wheat-free diet. And it wasn't until the 1970s that enough science had been done to formally recognize celiac disease as an autoimmune disease. And then also that was when they were able to target or pinpoint the specific genes that indicated whether someone has it or not that we still use today. Now, I know some of you guys listening to this podcast may know what celiac disease is really intimately. You may even have it yourself. And others of you may be a little bit confused about what the difference is between someone that just avoids gluten and has maybe an intolerance or a sensitivity and someone that has celiac disease. Well, to get deep into this, when someone that has celiac disease eats gluten, the reaction is that their body attacks their small intestines. And this actually damages the intestinal lining and prevents it from absorbing nutrients, which causes malabsorption, which is very dangerous for someone's health. And this is what led to mortality weights, rates that were so high before we figured out what celiac disease really was. This intestinal damage often causes diarrhea, fatigue, weight loss, bloating, anemia, and other very severe complications. And to this day, there's no cure for celiac disease other than following a strict gluten-free diet that can help to manage symptoms and promote intestinal healing. And when you do follow that, these people can live completely normal and healthy lives. I have a lot of people I know and people that I've worked with that have celiac disease and the severity of it can be different from person to person. There was someone I worked with in my internship and her celiac was so severe that if someone touched her food with something that contained gluten, so for example, one time she had a burger at a restaurant and instead of them initially doing it with no bun, they had the bun on first and removed it. And that made her sick for months. That's how severe it can be. And you may be wondering what goes wrong in someone's body that has celiac disease versus someone that just normally processes gluten. And it really just comes down to that small intestinal reaction because all of us have digestive enzymes that help us break down food, and protease is actually the enzyme that allows our body to process and break down proteins, because remember, gluten is a protein, but gluten doesn't actually get fully digested until it gets to the small intestine, and this isn't improper digestion. This is actually how gluten is meant to be digested, and there's other foods that are like this, but as you can imagine, for those of us that have normal 
intestines and don't have celiac disease, when that food gets to the small intestine, we just break it down. When someone that has celiac disease have gluten get to their small intestine, it's bad news bears. <laughs> In a very serious sense. I don't know why I felt the need to say bad news bears, but I do really think it's critical in this episode and in everything else that I'm going to share to recognize that when I'm talking about the pros and cons of gluten or when I'm discussing gluten intolerance or anything else along those lines, I am not talking about celiac disease. Celiac disease is so different and someone with celiac disease cannot and unfortunately as of current research and cures will never be able to eat gluten without serious ramifications. But before we took this detour into celiac disease, we were talking about the 1990s and how the USDA put wheat products on the bottom of the pyramid, which although it does sound opposite, is actually a good thing. It's not like dance bombs bottom of the pyramid. Please tell me some of you guys know the TikTok sound that I'm thinking of where Abby is saying, on the bottom of the pyramid, Shh, Maddie, and she pulls off the thing as if Maddie would ever be on the bottom of the pyramid. If you watch Dance Moms, you know. But the bottom of the pyramid in this circumstance means that it's a food that you should eat often, at least according to the USDA's recommendations. And as I was just talking about not that long ago, people were on board for that. They were about wheat products. There wasn't much interest in gluten. And so you may be wondering, when did that shift? Not only when did people that didn't have celiac disease start to feel like they were gluten sensitive or gluten intolerant, but also when did people even start looking up gluten? Well, if we look at Google search data, we can see that there was historically very little interest in the terms gluten or gluten-free until around 2010. But then once it hit 2010, interest increased rapidly. And of course, that brings up the question, why? You know, what caused this? And the truth is, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what did, but there are a few different things that we believe could have contributed to this, starting with the rise in allergies. So peanut allergies a few decades ago were actually rarely talked about. But today, it affects around 1 in 50 children, which is almost one child in every single class. To support this line of thinking, there was a study published in 2019 that included more than 40,000 people in the U.S., and it found that around 1 in 10 people had a food allergy, and around 1 in 5 thought they had a food allergy. It's interesting if you put this in conjunction with the study that was done by the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, because they show percentages of people that did not have celiac disease who chose gluten-free diets, and the percentages go as such. From the years of 2009 to 2010, only 0.5% of people were doing that. From the years of 2011 to 2012, 1% of people were doing that, and between the years of 2013 to 2014, 1.7% of people did that. So even though those percentages are small, those are actually large increases over time in the percentage of people that are following that. And that definitely could contribute, again, correlation doesn't equal causation, so we can't say for sure, but it could contribute to the stats that we're reading here about food allergies or suspected food allergies. Now, the other thing that could have contributed is the legitimization of gluten sensitivity. Now, we're actually gonna talk about if gluten sensitivities are 
legit and if there's research supporting them. But at this time and long before, actually I should say long before 2010, medical experts argued a lot about there if there were people without celiac disease that could be sensitive to gluten. And in 2010, the consensus shifted some and gluten sensitivity became more widely accepted, for better or for worse. 2011, there was a group of 15 experts that met in London to discuss gluten-related disorders, and following that meeting, there was a consensus paper that appeared in BMC Medicine and gluten sensitivity was included. Now, there's other meetings that were held in following years. I'm going to jump ahead to a 2014 paper that was outlining discussions at the 14th International Celiac Disease Symposium. And in this paper, the authors agreed that NCGS, so non-celiac gluten sensitivity, was the term of use. And we're going to talk about NCGS later on. But regardless, this was among one of the things that people suspect to have contributed to the rise in popularity for gluten and gluten-free diets. And the last thing that I'll speak to in this podcast in terms of reasons as to why there could have been a rise in gluten-free and interest in gluten is actually the influence of pop culture, social media, celebrities, doctors that have large amounts of influence, and of course, fad diets. There are many different examples that I could give to you that align with this category, but to go through a few, in 2012, Miley Cyrus tweeted that she had lost weight due to the gluten-free and lactose-free diet since she had gluten and lactose allergies. In 2015, a New York Times article by Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth has already been on the pod before, so we love to see a return from her. And I mean that in a sarcastic way. She claimed credit for the gluten-free craze after releasing a gluten-free cookbook called It's All Good. And Kourtney Kardashian was quoted in Us Weekly the following week saying, I kept battling with myself back and forth. Like, why am I doing this diet? I've always felt fine before when I was eating dairy and gluten, but I do believe that we have one life to live and I would like to live it feeling my best. I've noticed a great positive change in my behavior with my children when we stick to gluten-free and dairy-free. And after all this, in 2017, Dr. Alessio Fasano, the same scientist who determined that celiac disease was in about 1% of the population, stated that being gluten-free was now the most popular diet in Hollywood. When we have such influential people making claims that eating or not eating certain foods will lead to certain outcomes, whether it be physical, health-oriented, aesthetic, etc., etc., there are, of course, going to be people that do the same thing. There was actually a study conducted in 2022 that found that celebrity endorsements of certain products or lifestyle choices worked through the process of evaluative conditioning, which is where humans associate one stimulus with the second one, either positively or negatively. And that essentially means in this case that if we associate something with a celebrity that we really like or we want to look like or we want to act like, we are way more likely to consume that thing in response. So as more of these celebrities spoke out about ditching gluten or about the diets that they were doing that did or did not include gluten, more of their fans followed. 
Now I know we've gone through a lot of information already and what you probably want to hear are the actual truth behind the claims. Some of these claims we already started to hear as I was reading through these celebrity tweets and experiences, but the claims aren't limited to feeling better or losing weight. They are quite comprehensive. I swear I have heard everything under the sun in terms of either what gluten can be causing detrimentally or what a gluten-free diet can fix. And we can't spend all of this podcast going through every single claim because it would be 24 hours long, but we can talk about some of the main claims and arguments for the gluten-free diet and against the gluten-free diet or taking gluten out of your diet. So we're going to start off with the arguments that are for taking gluten out, aka for eating a gluten-free diet. And of course, we have to start with the obvious one, which is weight loss. There are tons of people that go gluten-free specifically because they believe that it will help them lose weight. And there are also a lot of people that you could talk to that will tell you they lost weight going on a gluten-free diet. Interestingly enough, there is no evidence-based research to support that people that go gluten-free lose weight. The theoretical idea behind this is that people going gluten-free may remove more processed foods from their diet and replace them with alternatives such as fruits, vegetables, different grains, and this could potentially keep them fuller longer and then contribute to weight loss. But there is not, as I said, evidence that supports this theoretical idea. Funny enough, there is actually research, although not extremely strong, that people that have celiac disease that then go on a gluten-free diet actually gain weight because they have absorbed, uh, they have improved absorption of nutrients and reduction in stomach discomfort, and that helps to increase their appetite. So the weight loss claim, if someone tells you that, that is flat out wrong, even though it's often something that is in the argument for going gluten-free. Another claim that is often made about going gluten-free is that it will give you more energy. I actually feel like this is one of the most common claims that I hear, and or just that it will make you feel better in general. Now, I have scoured the internet on this claim, and when you look up, will gluten-free give you more energy, even if you put research along with that search bar, most of it is lay articles. And the majority of those lay articles are actually quoting one specific study. It's called the Going Gluten-Free Study, and it was done in the UK, and it was conducted by Aberdeen University's Rowett Institute of Nutrition and Health, as well as the government and Genius Foods. Now, here's what's really interesting. This was done in 2015, the end of 2015. This study is not something that you can find online anymore, at least not easily, because I have spent so much time trying to find this freaking study, even scrolling through PDFs to try to find the old study. And the only thing you can find on it is 
all of the different lay article sources, so the Daily Mail, Women's Health, I mean, everything you can imagine, I swear, has reported on this article. And you can also find a post from the University of Aberdeen in June of 2014, June 4th to be exact, that says, gluten-free study calls for volunteers. And this is on their university website. It's asking for 100 volunteers to do a seven-week study to examine if if eliminating wheat makes us feel less bloated and more energized. The impact it has on the organisms that regulate health in our gut will also be assessed in the research led by experts from the University of Aberdeen. Now, this gives you a little insight on the study, but as I went through all these different sources that were reporting on it, I was able to find that what ended up happening is they had 95 adults 64 women, 34 men, and they adopted the gluten-free diet for three weeks, and then they returned to their normal diet for the same period of time. And let me tell you, this led to a whole host of evidence, according to them, which included that they found that stomach cramps and rumbles were reduced and their fatigue levels were lower during the gluten-free spell. It also found evidence that gluten intolerance not only exists for those with celiac disease, but for others too. And Dr. Alexandra Johnston of the Rowett Institute of Nutrition and Health told Daily Mail, it was interesting to discover that a gluten-free diet improves feelings of fatigue with participants reporting much higher energy levels during their gluten-free period. They were able to start tasks quicker, concentrate better, and think clearer during this time and felt the need to rest less, which all points to the idea that sensitivity to gluten does exist for individuals that don't have celiac disease. It was equally interesting to see that none of the participants gained weight while doing gluten-free. In fact, our participants' diets improved through increased fiber and vegetable consumption and reduced salt intake. Now, if we go back over to the university post, we also get to see that this study was funded by the Scottish Funding Council and Technology Strategy Board. It was 100,000 pounds, and it was also supported by a gluten-free food company. The levels of which this study is not only incorrect, but also just absolutely inundated with conflict of interest and so misleading. I mean, I can't even speak to it all. I mean, first of all, the sample size is too small to be significant or to make any conclusions. The study itself, I can't find, as I told you, and I think that's because it's been removed most likely because research gets reviewed and those reviewed research that's found to be faulty or incorrect will get taken down. And so I'm assuming that's what happened here because it was so incorrect. But let me tell you, they went on their freaking press tour. And that's really the only article around an increase in energy for people when going gluten-free that do not have celiac disease. And even with celiac disease, there's not really a ton of studies that observe the relationship between going on the gluten-free diet when you have celiac disease and having increased energy. It makes sense because energy is quite hard to measure, so quality of life is something that I would exchange for that, even though they're not necessarily the exact same. And 
through assessments of all of the research and meta-analysis, which is essentially the same thing, taking a whole bunch of research that's done on any similar topics and condensing it down, they have seen that when someone goes on a gluten-free diet and they have celiac disease, over time, it can increase their quality of life because their symptoms are reduced, which does make sense if you think about it, but that does not transfer then for someone that does not have celiac disease because the quality in life increase isn't from going on the diet. It's actually from having reduced symptoms. And interestingly enough, there are a lot of studies that show that upon initial celiac diagnosis or upon initially initially trying to start a gluten-free diet, quality of life can actually decrease because of the fact that there's so much education that you have to learn about it. And also there is a lot of rules really to keep in mind. Now, I don't think, again, we can't transfer that over to someone that would be doing a gluten-free diet that doesn't have celiac disease because that may not be as stressful for them. So it may not decrease their quality of life because there's not as big of a risk in terms of how they could feel if they do accidentally eat gluten. But that's more just interesting discussion to keep in mind. And I will say most of the sites that you look up and a lot of the people that you'll talk to can have crazy claims about all the ways that having gluten cut out can increase your energy. One of the specific ones I found was actually on a, a podcast and they turned this podcast into an article. It's called Elevase, which is natural living made easy. Supposedly by Dr. Isaac Jones and Erica Jones, which is an MHS, and it's called Should You Go Gluten-Free to Improve Energy? And in this, they say, digestion requires a lot of energy, and it takes even more of a toll when your body is trying to process something it can't. After being gluten-free, or after going gluten-free, you'll be putting less of a strain on your gut, and there's a good chance your energy levels will benefit. Gluten can also trigger symptoms related to food sensitivity, primarily being fatigued and slow digestion. This article also goes on to claim that gluten is a toxic to mitochondria, which are essential for energy, vitality, focus, and metabolism. And healthy mitochondria leads to great health and high energy. I am honestly speechless at the fact that there are people that put this information that is just so factually incorrect on the internet and that supposedly they are doctors. I mean, keep in mind though, doctors can be anything. All you have to do is have that PhD, right? You can be a doctor in communications and then someone can go on and act as if they know exactly what they're talking about. In this article, one of their sources is the Daily Mail. (laughs) Ah, and yet I totally understand how if you don't specialize in nutrition information and education, you could read what they're saying or listen to what they're saying and think, oh, this makes sense. I could totally see how I would do that, but I don't only because I went to school for six years to learn about this stuff. That's why you have to be so careful about not listening to people's anecdotal claims and also not just listening to podcasts by people that claim they know what they're talking about. Always come back to the research. 
And speaking of research, this brings us to our third claim, which is probably one of the most popular ones against you guys, my listeners, which is about gut health. I'm sure many of you guys have heard a number of claims about how gluten can affect your gut health from leaky gut to bloating to digestional distress to constipation to diarrhea. And we're going to go through the actual research that is present for gut health. Now, there is more research on gluten and gut health than the other two areas by far. But even when we're researching gut health, it's hard because it's very vague. You know, what is indicative of gut health? One of the main things that you will hear discussed, though, is your microbiome. Your microbiome is basically the composition of bacteria that are in your gut. And there was a study done in 2016 that looked at the influence of short-term gluten-free diet on human gut microbiome. They took 21 healthy volunteers, which healthy volunteer just means someone that doesn't have any ailments, and they took stool samples from the participants, nine in total, one at baseline, four during the gluten-free diet, four when they returned to their habitual diet, and then they looked at the results of the sequences and compared it to biomarkers, which is just, think about them as standards. So they did find that there were changes during the gluten-free diet intervention, the most striking being a change in a specific bacteria. And then also there was a group of bacteria that showed significant changes, and majority of these were known to play a role in starch metabolism. And then there was one more that was basically differences in pathways that are associated with a change in diet. So they were able to conclude that going on a gluten-free diet changes the gut microbiome composition and alters the activity of microbial pathways. Now, to speak more about this article, it's a very small sample size. So whenever we have a really small sample size, it's always going to be a little tough to actually determine whether or not this is something that will hold up over multiple studies. So with that being said, it doesn't mean to throw out the information, but it also doesn't mean that we can make correlation causation, aka think that this is totally true. The other thing is this doesn't necessarily mean that these changes in gut microbiome were bad. It really just follows the idea that as we eat different foods, our gut bacteria also change. And this is definitely supported by this finding that they had of starch metabolism being changed when a different diet without gluten was involved. Because we don't even know exactly what the diet that they gave them that was gluten-free had in it, so it could have had less starch and therefore the bacteria could have decreased. So this study mostly shows to us that gut microbiomes can change when gluten is taken out or when a gluten-free diet is incorporated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those changes are bad or good. And we also don't know for sure if these changes are even true because this is a very small sample size and this study hasn't been replicated. Now, that being said, there actually was a study that did a similar thing to the one that I just mentioned. It was a randomized controlled crossover trial 
And what that means is that all participants receive all of the interventions, which in this case was a low gluten diet and a high gluten diet, but the order in which they receive the interventions, aka the sequence, is randomized. And they did this for eight weeks in total. What they found is that a low gluten diet in apparently healthy adults changed the primary trial endpoint, which was the gut microbiome composition. And among the 14 bacterial species that changed between the two dietary regimens, particularly the relative abundance of bifidobacterium species was consistently diminished following adherence to a low gluten dietary regimen. I know that's a lot of confusing jargon, but just know that this is important in discussion with the FODMAP diet because a low FODMAP diet decreases the abundance of those specific bacteria, and it's been seen that decreasing that bacteria is actually what ends up with reducing IBS symptoms. So we're going to circle back to that in a second. The second thing that they found was a reduction in butyrate and hydrogen-producing bacteria. Now, this is in line with the idea that going lower gluten also changes the amount that fiber is interesting, your large intestine, and therefore there are less bacteria that are breaking those things down, which again relates back to the whole idea of the FODMAP diet and how having these certain things in your gut can then increase the production of hydrogen and therefore affect your IBS symptoms. I'm trying to keep this at a very understandable level when it's quite complex, so I will have the article linked for anybody that is interested in this. But something I wanted to point out that I thought was interesting is in this specific study, they actually didn't see a difference in stool samples when they made this change versus the other study was actually doing stool samples. So they were using like hydrogen breath tests and some other types of testing to do this. And I just thought that was an interesting shift. But what I think is really important here is recognizing that still these changes that happened didn't necessarily mean anything other than that there were shifts in composition and fermentation when someone was on a low gluten diet. And the biggest tie-in to this is actually what I've been mentioning, which is the FODMAP diet. So if you're not familiar with the FODMAP diet, it is a three-step elimination diet, or that's what it's supposed to be, where you remove FODMAPs, which stand for fermentable oleosaccharides, disaccharides, and monosaccharides, and polyols. And these are all short-chain carbohydrates that the small intestine absorbs poorly. And some people experience digestive distress after eating them. So if we circle all the way back to when we were discussing how our body digests gluten, you can see the tie here because gluten isn't fully digested until it gets to the small intestine, and so therefore it falls under this FODMAP category. So this study that I was just referencing really speaks to the fact that gluten is a FODMAP 
and FODMAPs have been seen to cause digestive distress. But if you know anything about FODMAP research, it is only supposed to be a short amount of time where these FODMAPs are taken out of the diet, and then they are supposed to be re-implemented. And I have so much to say about the FODMAP diet that we don't have time to go into here. If you want to learn my initial thoughts, you can go to the Gut Health Podcast where we talk about it. But essentially, the treatment is not super effective because it only works when you're doing it and then it doesn't create long-term changes. So even if gluten gave you some symptoms because you are dealing with some sensitivity to FODMAPs, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat gluten. So again, that study gives us some interesting insight but it's definitely not conclusive in saying being gluten-free helps with gut health symptoms other than if it is adjacent to FODMAP and for the reasons I just mentioned. There are more research studies similar to the ones that I just went through within the areas of gut health and gluten-free diets. Most of them are studying similar things and find similar results in pretty small populations or I should say sample sizes which is that the gut microbiome typically does shift, and maybe there are some significant things that can come about from those shifts. But in terms of if that is actually a bad or a good shift, we don't know. Really, it just seems like the natural shift that comes about when you change your diet. That being said, there are some studies that observe the impact of gluten-free diets on people with celiac disease specifically in relation to their gut microbiota and then their immune function, as well as other areas such as small intestinal repair and symptom reduction for GI distress. And as you can imagine, most of these studies point to the idea that when someone goes on a gluten-free diet and they've had celiac disease, their symptoms improve that associate with gut distress, their microbiome starts to shift, and also their immune function goes up because they're removing what was triggering their autoimmune disease. There are inconclusive results about whether or not the GI, especially that small intestinal part of the GI, can be repaired by going through a gluten-free diet. So far, it does not seem as if that's the case, if there was already damage before, but there is more research that could be coming out about that specifically. The last thing that we're going to be covering in the four gluten-free diets argument is the concern that gluten can trigger autoimmune and neurological diseases other than celiac disease. And these include autism, epilepsy, schizophrenia, ADHD. I mean, you name it, people have talked about how it could be affected by gluten. Now, before we get into that, the first thing that we need to address is that celiac disease can have neurological presentations such as headaches, numbness, and tingling. And that's a whole different conversation. We're more specifically talking about people that do not have celiac disease having effects from eating gluten on autism and all the other things that I have mentioned. Now, I'm going to include some articles again in the show notes, specifically one on autism that shows how this is inconclusive. I will also try to have some on ADHD, epilepsy, and schizophrenia. Ultimately, every single one of them is inconclusive. There is not supportive research to show that gluten for someone that is non-celiac is going to cause even a change in symptoms, but definitely not cause 
something like that to occur or to come about. That being said, I know that for some of you that may be really deep into this type of research, you may have seen information on anti-glidian antibodies and the diagnosis of gluten sensitivity. And so I want to discuss this here and then we're going to go more into gluten intolerance later. So first we have to start off with what is an anti-glidian antibody? It is some an antibody of the IgA, which IgA is an antibody that's a part of your immune system and an IgG class. An IgG is an antibody that neutralizes toxins, viruses, bacteria, etc. IgA antibodies are mainly found within the gut, those membranes, and the mucosa. IgG are mainly found in the blood and then other bodily fluids. These anti-glidian antibodies are very important because these indicate that there is an immune response in the gut to gluten in the diet. This is the case because glidian is actually a component of gluten, and so glidian antibodies help doctors to diagnose celiac disease. That being said, there are multiple markers to celiac disease, so you can't just test one element. The primary, most sensitive, and specific blood test out there is called the tissue transglutamase antibody IgA class. This is the test preferred by the American College of Gastroenterology and American Gastroenterology Association for the detection of celiac disease in those over two years old. If positive, the test can also monitor the condition and help evaluate effectiveness of the treatment for celiac disease. Now, as you can imagine, this only tests for celiac disease. So what often comes up is that people want to figure out how to test for gluten sensitivity. So there have been propositions and studies that have tried to investigate what could help diagnose non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so NCGS that we talked about a little bit earlier. And they have said that they believe that positive first-generation antibodies, which are AGAs, especially in the IgG class, coupled with uh, the anti-TTG test, EMA, and anti-demiated gliadin peptide antibodies, a bunch of other things could suggest NCGS. The thing is, when you look at IgG, those antibodies that we were talking about, they don't just show up in celiac disease. They do show up in around 80 to 90 percent for celiac disease, but they also show up for autoimmune liver disorders, connective tissue disease, IBS at 20 percent, and healthy controls even for 2 to 8 percent. And so, it's been very hard to be able to say that the correlation between those anti-gladian antibodies of the IgG sort and this diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity is actually significant and that we can use it for diagnostic accuracy. So essentially, this is not something that is accepted there is further research needed to be able to say that you can look at these antibodies and say that someone has gluten sensitivity. Now, you may be wondering why the heck I went through all that confusing jargon. Well, if you start to do research into the connections between ADHD and schizophrenia and autism and gluten intolerance, a lot of these doctors will speak to this. 
Dr. Peter Green, for example, was quoted saying the following in terms of gluten sensitivity. I've been interested in gluten sensitivity as it relates to psychiatric and neurological problems. There's a high rate of anti-gladian antibodies, a test used predominantly to determine gluten sensitivity, and schizophrenia, depression, and ADHD, much higher than the general population. He went on to state the results of the study found the following. 15% of healthy people have anti-gladian antibodies. 80% of kids they studied with ADHD have anti-gladian antibodies. They were not positive for celiac antibodies. He goes on to explain more about this, but what I'm trying to hit on is even if this information is interesting, even if there is some importance to it, we cannot just listen to people that try to make correlation causation and say, because I see this, it means this. Because I see that they have higher AGA antibodies, that means they have gluten sensitivity, and that means it's making their ADHD, depression, schizophrenia, autism, whatever it may be, worse, because it is factually inaccurate. There is not research to support it. And when we are talking about making big medication, dietary, lifestyle interventions and changes, we ultimately should be doing so with factual-based research behind it. So whenever you start to hear about someone telling you all of the different ways that autoimmune conditions or neurological conditions can be triggered by gluten and or helped by a gluten-free diet, even in relation to someone that says they could potentially have gluten sensitivity, it's important to know that the research does not support that. And this has been further supported by many different studies. The Journal of Autism and Development Disorders found there was no pattern and change in behavior when someone started and stopped eating gluten. But I do want to make a very important disclaimer and distinction here. Just because we don't have research on something doesn't mean that you couldn't have an experience that is different than what the research says, and it doesn't mean that there couldn't potentially be research in the future. I do know people with autoimmune diseases that feel whenever they eat gluten, it creates really terrible symptoms. And there could, of course, be multiple reasons for that, but there also could be very real ways that gluten is affecting their body that's hard for us to understand. And there have been ties that we've seen between populations that have autoimmune diseases struggling more when they eat gluten. And I think there's a lot more to be researched in this area. And it makes me curious myself to understand more about why that could be and what could be going on in the body. But a lot of people that are trying to go on a gluten-free diet, they're not really doing it for an autoimmune disease. They're doing it for a lot of the other reasons that I mentioned. And so I think that's important to make note of. Now, we've already gone through the pros or the arguments for gluten-free diet. Now let's talk about the cons of going on a gluten-free diet or removing gluten from your diet. For the sake of time, I'm not going to discuss the disadvantages that can come about from someone with celiac disease having to go on a gluten-free diet. There are disadvantages more psychologically and in some other areas that you could definitely investigate, but we just don't have the time for it. So let's discuss more generally starting off with the concerns that come up around nutritional quality when someone is consuming a gluten-free diet. So there have been some studies done on this, one in 2005 done by Thompson and colleagues 
took a small sample size of 47 U.S. adults and showed that they had low intake of recommended amounts of calcium, iron, and fiber. And then they did two additional studies that showed that because gluten-free foods are not enriched, they may be deficient in fiber, folate, iron, niacin, riboflamid, and thiamine. There have also been studies that have shown that the nutritional composition of processed gluten-free foods have actually demonstrated higher levels of lipids, trans fats, protein, and salt compared to their gluten-containing counterparts. Now, I don't recommend getting caught up in ingredients, but it is just an interesting thing that came up in research. And there are a fair amount of other research studies with much larger groups as well that speak to this change in nutritional composition when switching to a gluten-free diet without the diagnosis of celiac disease. But the most interesting one that comes up is actually a large study that was done on 45,000 men and 64,000 women from a health professional's follow-up study. And they assessed low, medium, and high gluten consumption based off of food diaries. And the aim was actually to identify whether gluten consumption was associated with coronary heart disease. And the authors actually found an inverse relationship between the outcomes of coronary artery disease and fatal and non-fatal myocardial infractions with gluten intake. So this observation prompted the hypothesis, which is not saying that that is 100% true. It's a hypothesis of something they want to explore, that the avoidance of gluten actually may result in reduced consumption of beneficial whole grains, which has then been linked to coronary artery disease. With that being said, when this study was reviewed, they saw that the quality of it wasn't super high and that there was lack of controls, especially, you know, they're analyzing food diaries. So this really limits our ability to make conclusions from the study, but it is something interesting to just keep in mind when it comes to going on a gluten-free diet. There are other more nutrition-based things that are being observed and studied in regards to why gluten can be beneficial, but a lot of the ones that are more important to discuss are actually the cost, social, and then behavioral effects of going gluten-free. There have been a few studies that have studied the psychological and social impacts. There, for example, was one done with 260 people on the gluten-free diet. 90% of them had the diagnosis of celiac disease, but there were also 38 non-celiac participants. And 80% of those said it was due to gluten sensitivity versus 34% said that it was due to uh, wanting to have a healthy lifestyle. By the way, these were done on a questionnaire if you're wondering why they could have multiple answers and why that number is higher than 100%. When they looked through the research, they found that 11% of respondents reported high levels of interference with social leisure activities, and they reported that they spent more time, money, and energy on food preparation, and there was a large shift from eating more meals at home versus eating them out of the home, and eating was found to be less pleasurable. Involved in that, they also had emotional reactions regarding the gluten-free diet, including feeling frustrated and misunderstood. 
This especially shows up for people that have celiac disease and actually have to follow the diet. It is less so for people that may not have those symptoms that are quite as strong when they venture from the diet. There was another study done in 2006 on 2,681 adult members of the Celiac Association, and 44% of them reported difficulties following the diet. They found it hard, um, 83% of them found it hard finding gluten-free foods, 79% of them avoided restaurants, 38% of them avoided travel, and in 2013, which do keep in mind based of our history, from 2010 on, there was an increase in awareness around gluten-free diets. The same population reported that difficulties and ne negative emotions were experienced less frequently, but they still said that eating away from home remained problematic. We know from adjacent research that some of the most important things for health include ability to connect with other, build relationships, experience joy, etc., etc. And when you are unable to do those things because of not being able to go out to eat, not being able to engage in social settings, it can be very negative in term of these in terms of the psychological impact on people. And for those that have celiac disease, unfortunately, they don't have a choice. But for those that do not have celiac disease, they do. So I just want you guys to start to ponder the pros and the cons of taking gluten out in relation to this. We'll discuss it more in the bottom line of this all, but just start to think about that. To go along with that, there was a recent Bustle article that was done, and this is of course an anecdotal report, right? This is not research, but the author tried cutting out gluten for a month and they found that they ended up just binging on gluten-containing products multiple times because the restrictive mindset was so powerful when they were trying to remove those foods. So that's not gonna be everybody's experience, but just kind of an interesting experience to keep in mind. I could state so many different examples very similar to that article from my own experience and from my clients' experiences as well. There are so many negative effects from restricting foods and especially something like gluten in the psychological or from a psychological standpoint just because gluten is in so many foods. So just from my experience, I will speak to that and the social isolation that can come about from that. But I think you guys know my viewpoints on those things, so I'm not going to hone in on them again in this section. So I wanna transition into the cost. Cutting out gluten can be really expensive. There was a study from 2019 that examined the difference in cost between gluten-free products and their gluten-containing counterparts from 2006 to 2016 in grocery stores across the country and researchers found that gluten-free products on average were 183% more expensive than their wheat counterparts. You may be wondering why this is the case. First, although gluten-free diets have become more popular in recent years, it still remains a very small portion of the population overall. Second, less demand for gluten-free foods means manufacturers can't buy the raw ingredients or produce it in the same bulk quantities as non-gluten-free ingredients, so it ends up costing them more money. For instance, wheat is often less expensive than gluten-free replacements, such as brown rice, almond flour, oat flour, etc., etc. Gluten-free foods also require manufacturers to take various precautionary measures to ensure that the both 
both the raw ingredients and the final product meet the strict gluten-free labeling guidelines set forth by the FDA. Think back to that story that I was telling about my friend from my dietetic internship and how even traces of gluten within a facility could cause her to have an extreme reaction as someone with celiac disease. So these extra precaution measures naturally come at a cost. Last but not least, manufacturers know that they can usually get away with charging more, whether because it is that people have genuine intolerance to gluten or simply because they feel as though it's a healthier option. People think that they don't have a choice but to buy the gluten-free option and they're willing to pay more to have what they believe is a quote-unquote better product. In 2018, the gluten-free products market was valued at about 8.79 billion U.S. dollars and it's forecasted to reach to over 16.31 billion U.S. dollars by 2025. There are more research articles that speak to the impacts of cost that you could check out within gluten-free diets as well. The last thing that I want to mention within the realm of pros for not going gluten-free is the tie to eating disorders, most specifically orthorexia. There are not research studies that specifically examine this correlation, but it is stated in some of these analysis that look at the potential cons of going on a gluten-free diet, specifically in the article that I will have in the show notes called Health Benefits and Adverse Effects of a Gluten-Free Diet in Non-Celiac Disease Patients. It speaks to orthorexia, which is an obsession with healthy eating. And I know for myself that gluten-free, being gluten-free and taking out gluten was definitely one of the things that contributed to my orthorexia and was a part of my rules. So that doesn't mean that those things correlate directly or that correlation is causation, but it's something that we can mention. So what's the bottom line from this research that we went through around gluten? Well, of course, I want to reiterate that cutting out gluten is necessary for celiac disease, and that's been proved time and time again. However, for the general population, there is no current evidence showing that a gluten-free diet is effective for any of the areas that we listed, any that was not, were not listed because they were deemed insignificant for us to go over within the time constraints, and even for overall health benefits. According to a research study done in 2017 with over 100,000 participants without celiac disease, Researchers concluded that the promotion of gluten-free diets among people without celiac disease should not be encouraged. Now, I know even as I go through all of this, some of you guys are probably still thinking about non-celiac gluten sensitivity or food intolerances to gluten and wondering then why are so many people diagnosed with this? How are they getting diagnosed? Is this accurate? Is it inaccurate? And I will say this could be an entire podcast in and of itself, but I do want to address this briefly and yet comprehensively. So celiac disease is genetic. So you can get a blood test for celiac disease or an allergy to wheat. However, there is a subgroup of people that suffer from NCGS, which occurs when people have unpleasant symptoms after eating gluten, despite not having celiac disease or a wheat allergy and they report a remission of their symptoms after removing gluten from their diet. This is very frequently self-diagnosed because there are currently not 
any gluten sensitivity tests that are recommended by doctors. There is no way to accurately diagnose gluten sensitivity or a food intolerance to gluten. No antibodies in the blood are specific enough or sensitive enough as we were discussing earlier. And as of now, the only way to dis diagnose NCGS is by a process of elimination in a person's diet or a double-blind placebo experiment. And neither of these are super accurate. Obviously, with elimination, there's a lot of personal bias and not many of us are going through double-blind pl placebo experiments on the day-to-day. And because scientists still don't have a precise way to diagnose non-celiac gluten sensitivity, we don't know a lot about it. And there are preliminary research studies, but none of them are conclusive. Anywhere between 0.5 to 13% of the American population supposedly has NCGS, which that's a huge range because of this self-diagnosis, and also the symptoms that come up from it are really variable from person to person, and this makes it even more difficult to diagnose because it's so individualized. This doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real or that people don't experience these things, but it does mean that we cannot accurately say that there is a way to diagnose food intolerances to gluten or sensitivities to gluten that are non-celiac. There are some theories as to why individuals with NCGS may be reacting to gluten. One of them is that they're actually reacting to the wheat rather than the gluten, which is why some people opt for alternative diets to gluten-free, such as low FODMAP. We discussed this earlier in those studies around microbiome changes and that bifidobacteria and how that bifidobacteria can decrease when you remove gluten-containing products, which then can decrease symptoms because your bacteria are no longer breaking down those short-chain carbohydrates. But we also talked about how the FODMAP diet is not a diet that is supposed to be done long-term. So it doesn't seem like a long-term solution. A second theory by scientists is that some patients, in some patients, the symptoms suffered after gluten ingestion are actually due to the psychological anticipation of intolerance. A recent meta-analysis of NCGS shows that more than 80% of non-celiac patients labeled as suffering from NCGS after a favorable response to the gluten-free diet cannot reach a formal diagnosis of NCGS after a double-blind placebo-controlled gluten challenge, which thus means that it appears that NCGS is overemphasized, likely due to the stigma surrounding gluten nowadays. What that means in actuality and non-scientific terms is that when they did an experiment where both the people conducting the study and the participants were blind to whether they were having something that contained gluten or not contain, not containing gluten, and they believed they had gluten sensitivity, they could not reach the diagnosis of a gluten sensitivity from even those studies because the symptoms that they experienced when actually eating the gluten were not conducive to that diagnosis. What we certainly know is that a lot of uncertainty remains around these topics and there definitely needs to be more research done. And I want to make it clear, again, I am not disregarding people with gluten sensitivities. I'm not claiming that they are not real. I totally believe in the discomfort and these symptoms. 
I myself was someone that believed I had gluten sensitivity, even thought I had a wheat allergy or celiac disease, and I didn't. But I did at that time experience really uncomfortable symptoms. For me, it was related to psychological things, but I don't believe that's the case for everybody. So I know how uncomfortable this can be. And I really do hope that we have more ways to help with diagnosis of these things, more tests, and more understanding of what's going on so that we have more credible evidence, we can prevent misleading results, and ultimately we can help to get quick diagnoses that are effective for people and have helpful treatments as well. I do want to though emphasize that just because a test tells you that it can test your food sensitivity for gluten, it does not mean that it is true. They are lying to you. Everlywell, I'm looking at you, but I'm looking at a lot of other ones too that tell you that that is the case. So when we look at all of this research together about gluten, gluten-free diets, and non-gluten sensitivity, it does kind of bring up the question of why is there such a fear around gluten? Or why is there such a desire to be gluten-free? And there are a few different aspects to this. The first one I'll mention is the halo effect, which is a marketing tactic used by companies to create the perception that their products are healthier than they actually are. It's everywhere, from packaging of food project products to celebrity endorsements of various supplements and diets. And the fear around gluten is definitely something that people utilize to their advantage to create this. As I've mentioned many times before, the wellness industry, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. Yes, trillion with a T, which is crazy. And it knows how to make a profit and take advantage of people who are trying to make healthier lifestyle choices and improve their well-being. So when the interest in the gluten-free lifestyle first began to gain traction, food manufacturers and wellness companies responded by flooding us with gluten-free products that they marketed as healthier or better for you than their gluten-free counterparts. And these often had no scientific claims to back them up, but the health halo makes it seem that that's the case. This is an example of how powerful it can be. To put research to it, there was actually a study done in 2013 of 2,000 adults, and 247 said they ate gluten-free foods for reasons other than an allergy or gluten intolerance. And among these 247 respondents, 65% did so because they believe gluten-free foods are healthier, and 27% chose gluten-free foods to aid in weight loss. Another reason as to why fear around gluten has popped up, especially recently, is in terms of processing. People will claim that we cannot or should not consume gluten because the wheat that we consume today is very different than the wheat that was being consumed and grown in the past. Supposedly, farmers are changing the way in which they are processing or engineering the crops in order to grow more wheat more quickly to ensure a larger profit. This claim is very in-depth. To accurately cover this, we really need to do an episode on organic versus non-organic foods and also on GMOs. We can't cover all of that in this episode. But what I will tell you is when I digged into the validity of this claim, 
What we can see is that overall, modern wheat varieties contain slightly less protein than old ones, and in contrast, the gluten content has remained constant over the past 120 years. And although the composition of the gluten has changed slightly, that one protein level, the scientist at the protein level, the scientists have not found any evidence that the immunoreactive potential of the wheat has changed as a result of agricultural changes during this time. So in other words, these slight changes should not impact how humans respond to or digest it. Moreover, yes, wheat has changed in the 120 years, but these changes are more due to a result in climate changes that then change farming practices because farmers are trying to make their crops more resilient. The last thing that I'll touch on is the actual process that foods containing gluten undergo. And this, again, very complex topic with a lot of nuance because a lot of the criticism that gluten comes under is actually due to the foods that contain gluten, such as white bread and bread products, pasta products, all of that type of stuff. Some people take a lot of issue to how flour can be bleached to make it white or to the glyphosate, which is a pesticide that can be used on the wheat, or to specific ways that these foods are broken down to create the products or to the ways that they add emulsifiers or different ingredients. So you can see why it would be impossible for us to hit on every single piece of this. But what's important to note is that gluten stays consistent in these products. So just because you don't like a product that contains gluten doesn't mean that the gluten itself is the enemy. And I understand that people are wanting to lead lifestyles that make them feel their best, and I do think we all have the autonomy to make those choices. Also, while keeping in mind that if we obsess too much about that and what that looks like, it can be detrimental. But just because you don't like a white bread doesn't mean that gluten is the problem. And gluten doesn't often undergo extensive processing in its creation. And so demonizing it in that way is really just kind of taking one thing and blowing it out of proportion. If we want to get more in depth in this in another episode, we certainly can. And of course, there are so many reasons why gluten has risen in popularity, some of which were already covered within the history section of this because they're still prevalent today, such as celebrity endorsement, social media all of that type of stuff. I think especially social media has been huge lately. But we've covered the main things that we really need to get through in this episode, and it's time to talk about the takeaways. I think the first thing that we have to address is just the fact that despite what people may tell you, there really is not research to support the fact that someone that is not celiac needs to be going gluten-free. And I understand that there are a number of people that may feel as if they have gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance. And as I mentioned earlier, 
There obviously needs to be more research done in these areas to help people that may truly have these gluten sensitivities get accurate diagnosis that are not just self-diagnosis. I also feel that if we had a more accurate diagnostic system for non uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, it would really relieve a lot of the ambiguity around whether someone actually has an intolerance or a sensitivity or not. And this would be beneficial in so many scenarios. Of course, disordered eating comes to mind because that's what I work in and eating disorders, but also even in terms of people going out to eat and the ability to communicate to others what you're truly dealing with it, dealing with and it being respected or understood more easily and a whole host of other things. But despite that, the reality is that we need to recognize that even if there are people dealing with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, from research that we have thus far, we see that a large percentage of that can be due to psychological assumption of sensitivity leading to reactions. Because most people diagnose their intolerances or sensitivity based off of reactions that they have in their body. And more often than not, it's related to gut health. And we discussed gut health more in those sections earlier and how a lot of the time those reactions could be due to of course mental things, but also FODMAPs, which is a bigger picture discussion that we would need to have. We also know that IBS can be highly affected by stress and other psychological things as well. And so we really have to ask ourselves if it truly is a sensitivity. And I say that because really, if you don't have celiac disease and if you don't have a true sensitivity, which is hard to define, There is simply no reason not to be consuming gluten. There really isn't even weak research to support the idea of not eating gluten, let alone strong research. And I understand how this could feel so confusing and contrary to everything that you've probably heard from people before. And I also get how it could make you wonder, is she just sharing she as in me? Am I just sharing my bias? And I am, am I just trying to convince you of this because that's what I believe? But I promise you, you know, if you look into the research yourself, if you check out some of the references, if you start going down this path, this is truly what you'll find when we really look at the research. There's just nothing to support these outlandish claims. And we discussed some of the reasons as to why this fear of gluten could have popped up. But ultimately, I really think it speaks to the power of the media and of people picking up something and it's spreading. And then it becomes almost a social norm and or it becomes something that's praised. And we can put this pressure on ourselves to feel like we're doing something better than other people or that we're doing something the same as people. And it just ends up being really harmful because we are engaging in something that not only could be detrimental to us physically, but more than anything, detrimental to us emotionally and mentally. I know in the four not eating gluten-free, or (laughs) that's the worst way I could say that, in the pro-gluten section, 
I discussed the studies that talk about the psychological, social impacts of going, of going gluten-free. But as I mentioned, I could speak to this at nauseum. So if you guys know my story, I dealt with orthorexia, which is an obsession with clean eating. And gluten, as I mentioned, was one of the things that was a huge fear for me. And I convinced myself into reactions and gluten especially, but my other restrictions as well, impeded my gluten or imposed gluten sensitivity and my other restrictions completely affected my quality of life, my mental health, my emotional health, my ability to cope with things. I mean, you name it, it was affecting it. And I think we really understate the impact of our psychology around food. And I know if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me talk about this time and time again, but the amount of stress that you can generate in your day-to-day life telling yourself that you shouldn't be eating things that actually aren't even making a negative impact on your health is immense. And that stress, we know is not good for us. We know from research that stress has been seen to cause so many detrimental things in our body. And if we put it into that context, especially within this example with gluten, is it really worth it to avoid gluten when we really don't have any reason as to why we should be? And especially when we have research to show that it causes so many challenges socially, eating out, vacationing, and so much more. I really think this is one of those scenarios where you have to get realistic about with yourself about why you're doing something, truly why you're doing something, and then also talk to yourself about the pros and the cons. You know, what truly is on the pro list for you in terms of not eating gluten? And then what is truly on the con list? And then fact check that with everything that was stated in this episode and how many of those things are left. And then ask yourself, where did those perceptions come about as well that may still remain on that list or may be crossed off in that list? And are those things that are actually evidence-based? And also, is there something deeper underneath that? Is there a desire for control? Is there a desire for feeling like you have something that makes you stand out? Is there a desire to adhere to the healthy friend, fit friend type of mindset? Is there a underlying emotion tied to eating or not eating this food? I mean, it could be anything really that comes up that has made you desire to adhere to something that may not actually be serving you in the long run. I also want to state the importance of being able to add gluten being delicious and being a part of eating out or traveling to the pro list. I am thinking about how often when you go out somewhere, gluten is involved in the meal in some sort of way. Maybe even just the appetizer that everybody is able to share. Or maybe it's the main entree that you're getting or that you want to get. And 
I really feel for people that have celiac disease that have to face these challenges and they don't have a choice. But for those of us that do not, the impact of being able to experience the joy that can come about not only from the foods themselves that are freaking delicious, but also from being able to have the connections and experiences and appreciation both culturally and socially and in so many other ways with gluten, it is awesome. I mean, it really is to be able to have those foods and to be able to engage with those things is important and should also be added to the list that we were just talking about. Now, I'm not able to give advice on your scenario with gluten without you being a client because I don't know your whole situation. I will say I have worked with clients with celiac disease and helped them with full freedom. I've worked with clients that have thought they had gluten intolerance and didn't. I've worked with clients that had thought they had gluten sensitivity and ultimately for a specific reason like an autoimmune disease, they actually did. I will say it's only happened one time and I've worked with over 300 clients. So it's a pretty rare thing to have, but I acknowledge that there is a lot of variation to everyone's experiences and a lot of different realities when it comes to gluten. What I will say is it is so helpful to be able to work with someone to figure this stuff out. Most specifically, someone that is non-diet and ideally a dietitian, but ultimately non-diet is more important than anything else because of the fact that not everybody has these perspectives around these type of foods, especially in the holistic space. A lot of the holistic space is a lot of pseudoscience BS and a lot of theoretical claims that aren't actually true. They just think that it makes sense and they take a lot of jumps from research and then throw them together and say, oh yeah, no, this is the case. Having someone that you can talk to about this and help you to implement things, understand reactions or lack of reactions, and find a way of interacting with gluten that really makes you feel best is really going to be helpful in the long term if you are struggling. But of course, if you have questions that you want to ask me, feel free to reach out and I'm always here to answer anything. And and on that note, I'm always here to just talk about any of your thoughts that may come up from an episode like this as well. Before I go into the outro though, we have to share on the diet culture scale of 0 to 10 how diet culture I think this is. Zero is not diacultry at all. Ten is super diacultry. And this is the most polarizing scale I've ever done or placement on the scale because gluten in and of itself is a zero in my opinion because nothing about it is diet culture. It's just a food or it's not even a food. It's a food ingredient. It's a, you know. I think that gluten in the way that it has been you know, taken to the masses and the way that we engage with it nowadays and all the things I was mentioning in this episode, I actually think it's a 10 because the claims are so blatantly false 
and so weak in terms of their claims and their research that backs him up that it has to be a 10 in terms of diet culture-ness. So that's quite a polarizing one, as I said. But I am seeming to lose a little bit of my mental steam towards the end, so I think it is time to close out. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know if you like these research-based episodes, and if you have any episode requests, please feel free to submit them. There's a link in the show notes to be able to do so, and you could also DM me on Instagram, and if you have the desire to send this to someone that you think it may help or to share it on your story or to leave a rating or review. Just know that it means the absolute world to me and it really helps to support this podcast. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening.